evening, everybody. Well, uh, we've been talking a lot about suffering. And uh, it seems like right on cue there's plenty of suffering coming up. And uh, so we're, we're trying to practice uh, not turning away, but really paying attention to the suffering, using the breath and the body, which are so smart, so reliable, compared to our mind, which is not that reliable, it turns out. But the breath and the body are, are very reliable and solid. So we can use the breath and the body to uh, notice how we automatically turn away from the suffering. And just gently, without forcing anything, turn toward the suffering and soften into it with our breathing and become intimate with the suffering. Um, begin to develop a, a warmth and a friendship uh, with the suffering, because suffering is normal. You know, we think that suffering is a sign that something is wrong, uh, out of whack, but actually suffering is normal. Some painful feeling in the body or some painful emotion in the mind, in the heart, it's normal. It's not that you're doing something wrong. It's not you, that you screwed up. It's not that you had a most unfortunate life. It's normal. And we turn toward the, the suffering and we breathe with the suffering. And, and we watch ourselves try to run away and we realize there's nowhere to go. Running away won't help. Running away will make it worse. So we breathe. And we remain patient. And if a lot of suffering comes up, uh, that's good because it's purification. In some of the groups we were talking about this, that it often happens, and especially in the first several days, that you, you have lots of maybe memories of uh, the past, maybe regret, remorse, maybe anger at things that happened. And then naturally you tell yourself, ah, you know, I'm not doing the meditation right. This is not supposed to be happening. This is not what meditation is about. But it is what meditation is about. Because by um, turning toward that, letting it come, letting it go, not obsessing about it, it's just being intimate with it, Letting it come, letting it go. We purify our hearts. Purification is hard work, and it's not necessarily pleasant. But it does clear the air, clear the space inside. So, after a certain amount of that, maybe the mind will calm down, and other things will emerge. 
And I don't think we want to get caught in concepts of progress. Like, oh, I got through that, now it's better. Whoops, now I'm back there. Damn, I lost it now. No, there's no progress. Sorry. No progress. <laughs> And I know uh, last night Mary Grace was talking about the four uh, reflections. And uh, they don't make matters any better, do they? Death, <laughs> death, <laughs> death is inevitable. It's true. It seems a little abstract when you're young, you know, death is inevitable. Yeah, yeah, but I got other problems. But uh, I can tell you, uh, it's not abstract. The inevitability of suffering, reflecting on these things, you know, are not, uh, don't necessarily make life uh, too cheerful. So, I want to apologize on behalf of, you know, all of, all of us sitting up here and the entire the staff of Spirit Rock, and, and, the, and the Buddha, <laughs> and all the Buddhist establishment throughout the last 2,600 years. I'm sorry that if we're making you suffer more than you need to. <laughs> and, and it wouldn't be nice if it was only the Buddhists that were making you suffer, and then you get rid of the Buddhists, and then everything would be fine. But no, it's not that the Buddhists are making you suffer, it's that the suffering is there, right? It's there. And if you forget about it or try to avoid it, it will catch up to you. So it's good you have a safe space to suffer a little bit. And I'm saying all this because uh, don't forget the first of the four reflections, right? Uh, the preciousness of a human life. Uh, the miracle of a human life. So I hope that you are also noticing that there's a lot of joy. I mean, actual joy. Um, and usually we think we need something significant for there to be joy, like it's got to be my birthday or something. <laughs> joy on my birthday. It's going to be Mother's Day. We'll have a joyful day on Mother's Day. Our children will send us flowers, take us out to dinner. It'll be a wonderful day. We'll have joy on that day. But actually, I hope you're noticing that you don't need it to be Mother's Day or your birthday or something special uh, for there to be actual joy. It is precious, uh, being human, and having the ability to look at the hills. Uh, and uh, even when, a moment ago, there was a lot of suffering, because you were thinking of something really difficult, in the next moment, it could happen that you, you are walking to the dining hall and looking up at the hills, and you're feeling joyful. Or just uh, 
feeling how nice it is to move around in your body. You've been sitting there a long time and now you get up and you walk to the dining hall and it's such a pleasure, right? To walk slowly, silently. And the food is a pleasure, to taste the food. Things that you might not even notice usually as a pleasure, as joyful. These days, I hope you are noticing how much joy there is. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fabulous thing, you know, being, being human. Uh, and, and it's, when you think about it, you know, uh, we are made to experience uh, the beauty of the hills and the skies. There's nothing like inherently beautiful about the hills or the sky. You know, another kind of a creature could show up and say, so what's the big deal about the sky and the hills? I don't think there's anything special about that. But we're made to appreciate you know, looking up at the sky and, and seeing the curve of the hills and feeling joyful when the mind is a little bit peaceful. E even if uh, we have strong conditions of suffering in our lives, it happens sometimes. It doesn't mean that in one moment, even in the midst of our suffering, we can't feel joy. I spent a lot of time uh, with uh, hospice workers and hospice care, and you could be in a terrible shape. And I, and I know, because some patients would tell us, ah, oh, the sheets are so cool. It's such a joy. So-and-so was so kind today when she came in. Joyful, beautiful, wonderful. But we have to be, but we could, we could not experience that. We could decide that everything sucks and it's a terrible and we're in a fix. We could, we could decide that and we could not even notice the joy that appears. So hopefully you're getting all of this, right? All of this. I, I think that I don't know about you, but what I would like to do is I would like to live my human life as completely as I can, all of it. In other words, I just, I don't want like blissful things. When you think about it, like bliss would become boring soon. Why do we like bliss? Because it never comes along. <laughs> when it comes along, it's like, whoa, we love it. But if we had it all the time, this is how our mind works. We would become tired of it. We don't want, you know, bliss in pleasant states all the time. We want reality. I do anyway, and I, probably you do too. We want really to be fully here with our lives. So, if, if there's pain, I want to feel it. I don't want to pretend it's not there. And I want to be able to be intimate with my pain. If there's joy, I don't want to miss it. I don't want to be distracted by some idea of my pain 
and miss the joy that's coming. And, and sometimes in one day there's strong and weak and suffering and strong and weak joy, all kinds of spaces in between when we're open to our full life. I think that's what we want and I think that's what our practice promises us. There's so much more to feel and to be lived than we usually allow. And, and I hope that the meditation practice uh, little by little softens our uh, habitual conceptual framework and allows us to be surprised that, that we're alive. Surprised that we have the experiences we do and grateful for all of them. I think that's what we're trying to do here. And I, and I think you, you realize that how much energy goes into the avoiding of suffering. And you, you, you muffle your whole life when you're scared of suffering and you're avoiding it. So that's why it's so important to let yourself be intimate with your suffering. Because that's where the love and the appreciation will eventually come from. So uh, the, the four reflections are uh, that we, we talked about last night and that, that you uh, shared about this afternoon. Uh, they come from uh, an, a very famous medieval Indo-Tibetan text called Seven Points of Mind Training or Heart Training. And that text is the subject of my book, Training and Compassion. And it's sort of loosely the, the theme we're following in this retreat. And the book uh, consists of, uh, the, the, not the book and also the text, the original text that the book is just a commentary on, uh, consists of um, 59 practice uh, slogans or watchwords organized under seven points. And the first point is, is called uh, train in the preliminaries. And under that first point are the four reflections. Because the first thing is to uh, go deep with our motivation. Uh, to ask ourselves, what are we doing here? How much, how important is this to us and why? Because it takes effort. Uh, and we will not make the effort unless we know why we're doing it and we're clear that it's important to us. So that's why it's important to train in the preliminaries and really look deeply within ourselves and see what's important to us. The second point is training and training in compassion. And it has two 
two, there's two divided into two, uh, absolute compassion and relative compassion. The third point is make difficulties into the path. And that's what we've been talking about so far. Instead of the suffering being something we want to avoid and eliminate, and, and we can even practice with that motivation, I'm, trying, I'm here to eliminate my suffering, to get rid of it somehow. Instead of that, we say, no, make the suffering and all difficulties that arise in our lives into our path. So instead of a difficulty being a stumbling block, something that takes us away from our path, we use it for the path. Uh, the fourth point is make practice your whole life. When you think about it, uh, being human is spiritual practice already. I mean, human beings are that type of beings. We're, we're like that. The rest of the animal kingdom is not as messed up as we are. They don't need to worry about this stuff. <laughs> you know, you don't see like rabbits and geese like thinking about their spiritual lives. They don't need to. Because they don't know they're going to die. And they don't, they're not trying to be more loving. They're just being what they are. And that's enough. That's all they need. But we human beings, we, we have to have spiritual lives. That's why we always have religion everywhere. If there's ever been a human community, there's always been some form of spiritual life, religious life. We need to do that. So if you, nowadays, we might put spiritual practice on our list, you know, like eating good foods, organic, you know, vague, vegan, uh, gym, work on my relationships, spiritual practice, and we check it off our list. No. The whole list is spiritual practice. Everything is spiritual practice. Our life has to be lived in accord with our truest intentions and our deepest aspirations. That's a happy life, right? So that's the Fifth point. The sixth point is uh, assess and extend. Be able to check how you're doing in your practice and know when you fell off the path, as you, we always will, that falling off the path is part of the path, right? Because life is the path. So falling off the path is part of the path and knowing what it's like to fall off and knowing what you need to do to take care of yourself, what kind of support you need, and being able to look at your own heart and see, this is my condition right now. Honestly, truly. That's very important. Uh, the sixth point is um, the discipline of relationship. Because nobody lives alone. Spiritual practice is not a private matter. It's completely interactive. We do it together. Everybody in our lives is part of our spiritual path. How we relate to others is a key element, especially when we're talking about training and compassion. 
So the discipline of relationship. And the last point, the seventh point, is uh, living with ease in a crazy world. And, and it is a crazy world. I mean, the therapists in the room, and I know there are many, can diagnose the world and come up with a pretty good diagnosis of what's wrong with it. Probably multiple, multiple diagnoses. It's a crazy world. It's stressful. It's difficult. And we might think uh, living in a crazy, difficult, stressful world is naturally I'm going to be crazy and stressed out myself because the world is that way and I'm surrounded by it. But no, uh, we can understand uh, how stressful the world is and have some ease and joy in it if we know how to take care of our mind and our heart. So there's a bunch of slogans under that point, living with ease in a crazy world. So that's just a little orientation to the seven points of mind training. There's 59 slogans. We're clearly not going to talk about all of them, but we're bringing up some of them. And, and notice that um, this training, this cultivation, is much broader than meditation practice. Very little of it, in fact, has to do with meditation practice. It has to do with the way we think, the way we handle ourselves emotionally, the way we re relate to other people, the way we take care of ourselves in various ways. But meditation practice is very important in terms of this training. Because I think we have to respect uh, how, how stuck we all are. In other words, our point of view, the way we think, we, the way who we think we are, the way we think the world is, what we think is going on, is very ingrained in us. We are totally convinced that the way I think it is, is the way it is. We are deeply conditioned. And so, logically, whatever would come into that conditioned mind would get spun around and come out the same, right? It would come out the same. Our conditioned mind would misperceive it according to its usual patterns. So, automatically, we will, we will misunderstand all spiritual teachings and make them only into more of the same craziness that made us miserable in the first place. <laughs> right? Unless we have a way of softening ourselves, softening our grip on that conditioning. And that's where the meditation practice is so absolutely essential. Because it's, we, as we've been saying, you know, it's physical. It's the body. It's the breath. It's bringing emotions and thoughts and feelings to the body and the breath, softening them, letting go of our grip, noticing that things come and go. We don't have to be so fixated on them. And we have to learn that again and again and again and again and again over time. And then, once we get a little soft, softer, we then can begin to make use of the various teachings in a way that we couldn't before.
So there's a kind of um, synergy, you know, between our ongoing meditation practice and the ways that we work with our mind and heart in the rest of our lives. Until it all becomes one thing. So, I'd like to share a little bit uh, from the uh, teaching about uh, absolute and relative compassion. Because I think it's not clear to us when you hear the words what this means. So I'm going to sort of like read a little bit from the text and, and uh, stop myself in the, here and there and say more. So uh, it begins by reflecting on the difference between empathy, sympathy, and compassion. And, and you know, I, these are not dictionary definitions. I'm just, and you can, every, every word I, I noticed, you know, as, as a writer and a poet, I'm high, highly aware of the fact that words are very plastic, very elastic. People use them in different ways. The same word might have the same dictionary definition for me and you, but in your world it might appear quite differently from what it does in my world. So here, we're just talking about empathy, being able to feel another person's feelings. And most of us are not that good at that. Most of us is like, what does she think of me? That's the only thing that I want to know about, you know. <laughs> who knows who she is, but what does she think of me? Does she like me? Does she think I'm a good person or not, you know? It's like the old Bette Midler joke, you know, okay, enough about me. Let's find out what you think about me. <laughs> I think that's common, right? So empathy is, no, we're not so focused on ourselves that we don't see what another person is thinking. We, we do see what they're thinking and feeling, and we, and we, and we, and we can kind of get it. We can take that in. But taking in what somebody else is feeling doesn't necessarily mean you care about them. Right? You could be very savvy about other people for the purpose of taking advantage of them. Sometimes like sociopaths and certain politicians are probably really good at you know, feeling other people's feelings. It's, it's their craft, right? So they can figure out how to raise a lot of money from them by knowing what they're feeling and using that. So sympathy, let's define as caring. Feeling another person's feeling, but also caring. And then compassion would be feeling another person's feeling, caring, specifically when they're suffering. Compassion actually has to do with suffering. The word compassion means suffering. Passion is suffering, right? Although we now use the word differently, but actually the word passion means suffering. When we say it's a passionate person, we mean it's a person with very powerful feelings, which means that person is likely to suffer a lot from the very powerful feelings. In Mahayana Buddhism, the term that has to do with training in compassion is bodhicitta. Bodhicitta is like a, it dawns on you. 
maybe based on these four reflections that we were talking about, that there is no other way but to do spiritual practice. That the thing that's most important to you is spiritual awakening. So bodhicitta literally means the spirit of awakening. Now that doesn't sound like compassion, does it? The spirit of awakening. But implicit in the Mahayana Buddhist understanding of what awakening is, is the thought that spiritual awakening, whatever you want to call it, enlightenment, means awakening to a deep concern for others. Since any selfish effort, even when the goal is wisdom, enlightenment, for oneself, any selfish effort could never lead to real awakening. It would always lead to more narrowness. So in the Mahayana Buddhist understanding, spiritual awakening is seeing through the illusion of one's own narrow separateness. So that's what we want to be awakened to, awakened to going beyond our separateness. And that's essentially mean, means we're altruistic, we're loving. So cultivating bodhicitta means cultivating true and heartfelt concern for others in a way that is not clinging or arrogant, but is based on a deep wisdom that none of us is really and truly separate from anybody else. None of us could ever be alone. We are completely implicated with one another. Every person that we meet in that moment gives us our life. Understanding that is what Mahayana Buddhism means by spiritual awakening. So the essence of awakening, which is liberation, is liberation from ourselves. Liberation from our smallness. Why are we scared? We're so small. We're so vulnerable. Of course we're terribly fearful. But awakening means being liberated from ourselves. So that now, really there's nothing to fear. The four reflections remind us that, yeah, we don't think about it very often, but it is true that life is ultimately a challenging thing. And we cannot really and truly live it unless we work towards spiritual awakening, toward liberation from our smallness. And this means opening up to others. I mean, it's almost the opposite of what mostly people think of as meditation. Think, people think of meditation as a private thing you do with and about yourself. <laughs> and this teaching is saying the opposite. That actually, meditation is softening you up so that you can get over yourself. <laughs> and appreciate and love other people and see how wonderful they are and how much 
you need them and they need you. And we were talking about this the other day, you know, self and other are not realities. They're conceptual designations. We were talking about me and you, remember? Not Elizabeth, but me and you. <laughs> Sometimes they say, it's like this mountain and that mountain. You say, see that mountain over there? Well, I'm on this mountain. Then you go down this mountain and you go back over there. And now you're on that mountain. And you look over here and you say, it's that mountain. Wait a minute. <laughs> I thought it was this mountain, but now it's that mountain. Self and other is like that. We exchange positions. You know, we come and we go. Those differences, conceptual differences, are significant, of course, but they're not fundamental. So, I know it's hard to appreciate this, but when you begin to feel it, when your practice gets you to the point where you really get this point, and you feel it in your bones, in your breath, in your body, then you realize that compassion is not what you thought it was. Compassion is not being a nice guy and sacrificing yourself for others. Compassion is the way you take care of yourself. You love other people, it's the best thing you can do for yourself. And then, you realize the only way you can love other people is based on this body and mind, so I better take care of this body and mind so I can love other people. If there are people in your life that you care about, you don't want to be falling down and falling apart and making them like have to pick you up. Take care of yourself for them. So yeah, eating the good vegan food and all that and going to the gym and taking care of yourself is really important, but not for you. For the real you, which is them, which is everybody. Right? Nowadays, it's interesting, you know, uh, I mean, now we know that if I, um, if I don't think about this, and I smoke three packs of cigarettes a day, you pay for it. Right? Right? So if I take care of myself, I'm saving you money. <laughs> and, I, and, I'm, and I'm helping all of us together to be more healthy. Right? Now, now we kind of think like that now. And that's a smart way to think. The only way we can love ourselves, and we want to love ourselves because uh, we're closer to ourselves than we could be to anybody else. So we want to love ourselves, be really good company for ourselves. The only way we could love ourselves is by loving others. If you love yourself and you don't love others, you really don't love yourself. You know, and, and you, probably you know somebody who loves themselves and doesn't love others. And you look at that person and you're not thinking they really love themselves. You're thinking they're stuck up and arrogant, you know. Right? The only way you could love yourself is by loving others. And the only way you can love others is by loving yourself. The person who is self-sacrificing, trashing their, themselves, and only running around helping other people, is probably harboring a giant treasure chest of resentment and pain. And they're running around helping everybody else to cover up all that resentment and pain. Because the only way you could love others is to love yourself. 
the practices that cultivate love of others always begin with love of oneself, compassion for oneself. Not because I need to get compassion for myself lest I give it all away to others, but because it's one thing. It's really one thing. So when you take this into your heart and really begin to understand this and live it, it changes your whole life. And once you open up to it, you cannot go back anymore. You, you just, your, 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 your selfishness and your resentment just become totally unconvincing. Now, probably because the habit of selfishness and resentment is so strong, it still keeps coming. But now, we understand what it is. We understand that it's not really based on anything factual. It's based on confusion. So these feelings are far less compelling. Because now we know how stupid they are. There I go again. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I can't possibly believe in this. You know? I mean, selfishness and defensiveness is ridiculous. It doesn't do anybody any good, and it's based on erroneous assumptions, and now you know that. And so when you feel selfish, and when you feel defensive, you say, oh no, there I go again. I can't really buy that anymore. So it's almost impossible to be willfully or intentionally aggressive it's almost impossible to be willfully and intentionally disrespectful because we will have seen with our eyes, just like you can look outside and see the sky above. It's clear. There's a sky up there. We can see that all of life is one sky warmed by one sun. So we can no longer fool ourselves. To separate ourselves from others is simply not in accord with what we will have come to see. So there is no way that we could validate in ourselves resentfulness, hatred, self-centeredness, favoring ourselves over others. Even though we have the habit of doing that, we can no longer buy it. So now, the difference between um, absolute and relative compassion. So absolute compassion is absolute love. A love that's bigger than any emotion and bigger than any object. They say that in absolute love, it's beyond a lover and a beloved. Because absolute love folds the lover and the beloved into one. Absolute love amounts to a total vision of life itself as love. Life is love, you know? Life just keeps on going, right? It's amazing. Life has a way of yearning, you know, toward the light. 
right? Like a plant. It's almost like you can look at the whole green earth and you can say, this, this is the whole green earth loving the sun and the sun loving the earth, right? And then everything else comes from that, all the life on the planet. Love and life are the same thing. And within this love, it's so big that there couldn't be any loss. Because this love even includes absence, maybe especially absence. So nothing could ever be lost. So absolute bodhicitta, or absolute compassion, is the empty, perfect, expansive, joyful, spacious nature of existence itself. Not something, and a concept we add on to existence, but it's actually existence itself. And it's been that way all along, but now we realize we've been so literally in a trance of our smallness and our pain that we just didn't notice that this was already going on. We didn't make it you know, be that way. It was that way all along. But we didn't see it because we were so stuck on ourselves. And we had like tunnel vision, you know. They say in Zen, and it's a saying, you know, like looking at the sky through a pipe. You know, how much do you see? It's like that. Maybe you could say, if you wanted to put it this way, that, that this absolute love is like God, present everywhere always, even in absence, even in loss. And when we awaken to it, it's like coming to know that there is nothing but God. There never was anything but God, and there never will be anything but God, and that everything is always held and has always been held, and that we are always loved, and we have always been loved. And so has everything and everyone. And that's the way it is. All we need to do is see it. That's absolute compassion. And we cultivate that in our practice, especially in our meditation practice, when the mind really, really gets calm and settled and we let go of so much that we have purified ourselves of by sitting here in, in a funk for a while. And all of a sudden, you know, we just feel, maybe in just one moment, or less than a moment, we can feel this. We can have confidence in it. Absolute compassion. So relative compassion is harder, because now we have to do something. Right? We're not having this warm, fuzzy feeling, or maybe we are, but now we have to do something. We have to roll up our sleeves and get on with the business of actually helping people that we care about. Offering encouragement, support, f food, clothing, better laws, better politicians, better political systems. Whatever it takes to benefit other people. Now, with relative compassion, we undertake projects and sometimes we, they succeed brilliantly and other times they fail miserably. 
with relative compassion, we do suffer losses. We suffer terrible losses. We suffer terrible pains. And we cry. And our hearts get broken. And we grieve. And we're upset. Or sometimes the opposite. Sometimes we're really happy when other people are happy. We don't have to be happy to be happy. We can be happy when they're happy. You know? Mothers know this, right? I'm miserable, but look, my child is happy. I'm happy. <laughs> right? We're, so we all become mothers. Chances for happiness increase by a factor of seven billion. When anybody's happy, we can be happy. So there's no end to what we do and feel under the category of relative compassion. Sometimes we take on a big project, we spend like 30 years, and then it's over, and it was successful, and now we're old and we say, we're just beginning. Just got to start on it. There's so much more to do. There's no end. There's no end. There will never be an end to taking care of other people. Righting wrongs, fixing what's broken, healing the sick, mending the broken hearts. It will go on forever. That's relative compassion. And we do what we can. Everyone in a different position, whatever position we're in, from that position, we do what, what we can do. Forever. Which might sound exhausting. You know, oh no. <laughs> this is going to go on forever? Yeah, forever. I was telling somebody that there's actually a place in this, there's a, like this Buddhist encyclopedia uh, of practices and so on called Abhidharma Kosha, and there's actually a thing in there that says, how long does this take? And it tells you, you know, how long it takes for each person. You know, how long is it going to take you know, for you to perfect this practice? Uh, and it's something like 10 to the 52nd power, something like that, lifetimes. That's how long it will take. So let's not be in a hurry. It would be ridiculous when we have a project that big to be looking at our watch and think, you know, how come I'm not getting this done? <laughs> so we, there, we, we joyfully go forward. All we need to do is take one step. And then the next person will take more steps. So this may seem exhausting and like uh, discouraging, you know, this big project. But it isn't. Relative compassion, trying hard to help in a practical way. Absolute compassion, you don't really need to worry about it because even if our helping is a total failure, and it often is, it doesn't matter because this big love is going to be all over everything anyway. And this big love is going to heal anyway, no matter how miserable of a failure we are. So we can drop the desperate idea that everything is up to us. Well, everything is up to us. <laughs> but it's the big us, the absolute love us, not the little 
small, seeing the world through a pipe, love us. And the big us definitely can take care of everything because it's already taken care of by the big love. And so we can really feel committed to others and loving of others and we can do our best to help and not get pushed out of shape when things don't work out the way we thought they should. So both these things are important. Both absolute compassion and relative compassion, they can only really work together. If you don't have absolute compassion, relative compassion becomes burnout. It becomes frustrating. It becomes forced. You get frustrated. You get mad at the people you're trying to help. Straighten out. How come you're not straightening out? You know, I, I'm doing all this stuff for you. <laughs> you know? How come you're not grateful? It gets really, this is why people burn out. Because you need absolute compassion. But if you just have absolute compassion and you don't have relative compassion, if you just love all humanity but you actually don't like anybody, <laughs> there are people who love humanity but they just don't like anybody. <laughs> just get everybody out of, out of my way. I want to just meditate and love humanity. I just don't want to talk to anybody because they're so unpleasant and annoying. <laughs> that doesn't make any sense, right? In other words, the absolute love only it can be absolute love when there's a relative love, when you actually are loving people in your life, people you meet, regular, actual people. And then you realize how the best thing is for, to get awakened, to, get, to wake up from this stupid dream of my smallness. And how is that going to happen? How is that going to take place? It's going to take place because of the others. The other people in my life that I'm going to love, and because of that, I'm going to wake up. And I'm going to find some happiness. Thank you, everybody, for that. Thank you for being the source of my greatest happiness. That's the idea. So the relative and the absolute compassion have to go together. So there are many ways to practice with these points. But maybe for now, uh, one way might be, if you want to take this up, think about it. When you, when you breathe in, breathe in absolute love. When you breathe out, breathe out kindness to others. Start with yourself. Breathe in the absolute love that surrounds you. And when you breathe out, ascend that love back to yourself. Surround yourself with it. 
and then extend it to the people sitting nearby you, to everybody in the room, to people that you love who aren't in the room, and to everyone. Breathing in or breathing out. Use your imagination. Breath after breath to cultivate this kind of love. And, and let yourself be healed by it and made glad by it. Wouldn't it be something if even when you were feeling strong suffering because of conditions in your life, at that same moment you could be doing this practice and feeling this also? Wouldn't that be wonderful? So I want to, uh, you know, we were talking about this uh, and saying that we don't want to uh, confuse you and give you a million things to do. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, we don't want to make it boring and just give you one thing to do that you get tired of, <laughs> right? <laughs> so maybe we'll give you a number of things to do, but, uh, but just know that you are not obligated to make use of any of them at all. This one practice of breathing into the suffering would be enough for the whole retreat. However, if you want to take up other practices because they seem, somehow they strike you as, wow, I'd like to try that, then please do. Whichever ones make sense to you, stay with it for a while, go on to something else. Through the course of the retreat, we may offer various things. So I'll close tonight with offering you one more practice. This came up in one of our groups. And uh, I would like to offer this practice to you in the memory of uh, my dear uh, colleague and friend, the fellow uh, Zen priest in our lineage, uh, Abbot Steve Stuckey, who died a few years ago. Uh, I could go on about Steve, but I'll just very briefly just tell you that he was an exceptionally wonderful person. An old-fashioned kind of a person, like an upstanding, dignified person. He grew up in the Mennonite community in Kansas. And his dad was a farmer, and he grew up as a farmer. And in the summers, he'd drive big farm machines. And when he moved to Green Gulch with us in the 1970s, he was working on the farm because he knew farming. And he had that sort of Midwestern farmer's upright spirit. When, when our monastery almost burned down, he sent everybody away, and with a few people, he stayed behind. And um, the forest fire surrounding the monastery, he stayed behind and kept uh, putting water on the roofs of all the buildings and starting backfires and saved the whole monastery. Wonderful person. The kind of person that if you ever were in a jam, he's the person. Steady, practical, knew how to do everything, you know. So he had a, he had a practice uh, that is like, uh, it's, it's one of the slogans in the book. It would begin at the beginning, end at the end. And, and, and here's the way you can practice it. In the morning, when you get out of bed, and you have to catch yourself, because you, to train yourself to do this, it takes some doing. But in the morning when you get out of bed, usually you put your feet on the floor, right? You're in the bed. Mm -hmm. 
you have to get out of bed. You don't fly out of bed. You put your feet on the floor and you stand up, right? See if you can train yourself that when you put your feet on the floor, stop for a moment. You're kind of half asleep. Stop for a moment. Take one breath, one breath, and remind yourself of your deepest intention, whatever that may appear to be in that moment. What, what, what do I want to do with this day of my life? One breath. Take a moment. See what comes into your mind. And then go forth. Begin at the beginning. End at the end. At the end of the day, same thing. Feet are on the floor. You're going to swing them over into the bed. When they're on the floor, before you swing your feet into the bed, say one word to yourself. Grateful. This was Steve's practice. Grateful. And just see what comes into your mind when you say that one word. Steve was a robust, strong guy. He got pancreatic cancer. Painful, horrible disease. It took like four months, five months maybe, between the time he uh, was diagnosed and the time he died. He had this practice that he would, did for many, many years. He continued doing it for those four or five months. Every day, in the midst of his struggles, he put his feet on the floor before bed and said, grateful, and opened his mind to the many, many things that he had to be grateful for. So in his memory, in his spirit, I offer you this beautiful practice and I'm doing it, I'm saying it now because maybe you can establish it in the next few days if you want to. And, and for those of you who have really busy lives and you think, oh my God, this is a great practice, but I'll never be able to go on a long retreat again. I have seven little children. I have three jobs. <laughs> and I start up on the side. <laughs> you can do this, right? You can do this. So if you can establish it in the next few days, if you want to, I think it's a beautiful practice to continue uh, for many years, maybe your whole life. It will make a big difference. This slogan uh, comes from the section called Living with Ease in a Crazy World. Right? This is how you do it. You have to be clever and dedicated. It's not a matter of having a lot of time. It's a matter of knowing how to use the time you have. So we'll stop here and uh, we'll have walking now, right? We have walking and then we'll come back in for a last sit. Thank you very much for, for listening and for practicing. And please continue. I plan to do the same. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.